You're listening to the Morning Shakeout Podcast. I love to run, period. You can always run faster. Forever, you're going to feel something. You're going to run into roadblocks, but that's also going to teach you how to handle things in life. I don't think we want to be like rocks where we're not affected by anything. It's not maybe a physical thing, but it's a mental thing. There's like two voices in me, alpha and beta. Really trying to do is just keep moving forward. Every single runner knows what that means. My life has a purpose, and maybe it's not what I thought it was going to be, but. There were times when I didn't think I would be able to come back. There's a lot of people that had different gifts, and they don't use it. I think if we all use our gifts, we could do something really special, not for ourselves, but for our family, if we're really good. We can do something for our community, wherever we live. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's your host, Mario Fraley. We are back with the first episode for the second half of 2023 of the Morning Shakeout podcast. And with me to tee this one up is my right-hand man, Chris Douglas. Chris, great to be back on the mics with you. Hi, good to be here. What's happening? You know, not much, man. Just uh, on my side of things, getting ready for the Swim Run World Championship, which uh, a date of recording, it's less than a month away. Um, it's very exciting. I feel really lucky to be able to go back there, but it's also a really big day. So there's always that trepidation before race day. But yeah, man, just doing the final huge build for that and feeling good. Yeah. We talked a little bit about your experience there last year on a previous episode of the podcast. I don't remember what episode number off the top of my head, but for people listening now, give the Cliff Notes version of what the <laughs> Otella World Championships in swim run entails. Yeah. Well, it's basically an amphibious trail run where you swim across and then through all these 26 islands in the Stockholm Archipelago. Uh, for 75 kilometers, around um, you know, 10k of that is swimming, and the rest is running. And yeah, you do that all in one day. It's uh, yeah, it's pretty sporty, but it's uh, yeah, a great way to experience nature. And it's just uh, it's just a weird, kooky partner sport. My partner Chipper and I were dialing, getting all dialed in for it, and and feeling super strong, crushing yards in the pool, and just yeah, man going to go experience it again and can't believe it yeah it's just such a unique sport because i mean you are going from being vertical running forward for anywhere from like a few minutes to several hours at a time and then you hop in the water and have to swim to the next island and like do that again and i mean as someone who has like zero aquatic skills (laughs) at all (laughs) i am just uh in awe of i mean both you and chipper's ability i mean you guys did quite well at this event last year and in swim run in in general but especially for like just the distance of this race like it is like it's an ultra distance race and it combines these two things like like ultra marathoners are like yeah we have this like big stream crossing it's like uh hold my beer <laughs> yeah exactly yeah stream crossing is like we're, we actually look forward to them yeah i mean I, I don't not trying to name drop but i was hanging out with rich roll a few weeks ago and um he mentioned that this was the hardest one day event he's ever done and this is a guy who's obviously yeah. done ridiculously hard things so to me i was like oh man if he thinks that then i'm sort of like well what the hell am i doing <laughs> like why what, what am i doing this but uh but yeah alas well, it's happening it helps put it in perspective i think that's For a good sure. a good place to put a pin in that let's talk about 
this week's episode. You had a chance to listen to it early. Yeah. So, so a couple questions. So, this week's guest is Bishop Jennifer Baskerville Burroughs, who, um, as mentioned, she's a bishop in the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. If I, if I uh, re- heard that correctly, and in the Episcopal Church, in the Episcopal Church. Yeah. I mean, I was. Well, as I was listening to it, I was like, oh, man, this is like the Holy Runner show, um, part one. So my question for you is, um, you know, how did you connect? How did you get connected with um, with Jennifer? And and yeah, like, how does this even come about? Because it's a really interesting conversation. Yeah. So Jennifer, who I've never met in person, is a longtime subscriber to the Morning Shakeout email newsletter. If you are not subscribed and you're listening to this, you can do that at themorningshakeout.com slash subscribe. Um I wouldn't be doing myself any favors if I didn't plug that, (laughs) but she's been subscribed for a long time. And at some point back in 2016, I believe she replied to one of my emails. I could go look it up and see what it was about, but I don't remember off the top of my head, but it started this dialogue and that dialogue has gone on for about seven years now. And fast forward to just a few months ago, Jennifer had mentioned to me that she was going on sabbatical from her role as as bishop, and she had essentially, I think it was six months off of work. And how she decided to spend her time, or part of her time while she was away from work, was to hit the road and go visit run crews around the United States, run crews and run clubs, but also at least one in London and maybe another international destination. I don't remember exactly. I was like, ah, that's, that's really cool and unique. But part of the reason that she wanted to do that was to understand what it is that attracted people to these, these run crews and it's a sense of community and belonging, which is a central mission of her work as a bishop. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes and throughout history, people have gone to you know, the, the church or their building of, of worship, their denomination of faith, however you want to quantify it, as a, as a place of community and, and belonging. And as many of us have read in the headlines over the last several years, um, attendance at at church and at worship ceremonies for various religions has has gone down. So it was kind of an exploration for her. And I've just observed in all of, of you know my, my years, but my years around running specifically, that there are a lot of parallels between people who belong to a, a religion and people who identify as runners or, or endurance athletes. So um, mm-hmm. that's really what spurred the idea in my head to have this conversation with with Jennifer and I know we'll talk a little bit about this here in a minute but this is the first of a two-part episode and part two has not been recorded yet so Jennifer is about to go back to work here soon she needs to take some time to process her visits with these run crews and run clubs and we're going to talk about those specific experiences in the second part of Mm -hmm. this conversation a few months from now I think we're going to record that probably early November and put it out shortly thereafter. But this first episode is really to set the table and to introduce my listeners to Jennifer, who she is, how she discovered running, her path in the church, how she became a bishop, because that is not, as she talks about during this conversation, what she thought she would end up doing with her life. And 
it, it was just, it was awesome. It was an awesome conversation. I really, really enjoyed it, and I'm super excited for people to listen to it. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it really was a great conversation, and I think what, one of the things that struck me, as you alluded to, was sort of the parallels between worship and running. Mm -hmm. And, you know, one of the things that you speak about specifically is sort of what's possible through the lens of running. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that that became clear to me in listening to this is what's possible with the lens of running is finding these parallels between how we develop community and how we, uh, how like the act of running can actually be a pretty spiritual experience when you do it in groups and Mm -hmm. and her journey of being a solo runner for a super long time and running in groups. um, That's what really sparked it for her. And I think, um, yeah, it was, it was just a really, interesting sort of application of the possibilities of running. Yeah, I think the three big themes in this conversation are community, belonging, and meeting, and how people find that in their lives, whether it's through religion, whether it's through running, or as Jennifer talked about, doesn't really matter what it is as long as they're finding those things and it's helping to fulfill yeah. them as as a person. And not to give the whole thing away, but yeah, in, in Jennifer's journey, she found running in high school and it was something that she did by herself for many years thereafter and had no thoughts of racing or being part of a, a running club. And then that shifted for her. And I'm going to leave it at that because I don't want to ruin the story. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. And I think one thing I appreciate about her um, as someone who grew up Catholic is uh, that she wasn't very dogmatic about it. Like, no, she, not like she really didn't care how people find community or their spirituality. Like it didn't have to be in sort of in her church or anything like that. It was just, hey, wherever you can find it is great. Whatever language you use to describe it is great. Just just do it. And I thought that was, um, yeah, that was just, a, you know the right way i think to describe it (laughs) yeah i mean i i hope that (laughs) listeners who are tuning in right now are like i don't want to listen to bishop talk about anything like give it a chance um it's not a top it's not dogmatic it's not preachy in in any way i think it's a very relatable conversation for i'm going to say most people and i mean i've done 220 some odd episodes of the morning shakeout podcast at this yep. point and i i'm super proud and grateful of this one i think anyone who's ever ran in a group or is intrigued about potentially running in a group this is a great episode to listen to i think we'll leave it at that i think so i think right. so but before we get to the interview should we thank our sponsors yes let's thank the sponsors that make this episode possible first shout out goes to my longtime partners at tracksmith tracksmith is a boston-based running brand I love everything about this brand from the apparel that they make, but really just the care and attention to detail that they put into everything that they do, the way that they celebrate the sport, um, through the content that they produce, the events that they put on now. I mean, as of this conversation, about two weeks away from the Tracksmith 5000, the second one that's going to be in Oakland, I'm going to actually race in this one, but I've been to the previous few editions here in the Bay Area, and it's just awesome how they bring people together. I mean, you know, central theme of this conversation is is community. Tracksmith does a great job of that in their home base of Boston, but they're starting to set up outposts in other parts of the world. They have one in New York, they have one in London, but they're putting on events, you know, all over the place, even where they don't have an actual footprint. So I love what they're doing for the sport. They make great apparel. Cross-country season is upon us. I'm going to be racing one here in the Bay Area. They have their cross-country collection coming out here in mid-August, and it just like pays homage to, I think, what is the purest form of competitive racing. Just starts here, finishes there. Yep. There's this loop. We're going to do it like four times, and it goes over all kinds of like tough terrain and hills, uh, grass. I mean, it's just it's pure racing, and I love cross-country 
I want more people to love cross country. <laughs> I love that Tracksmith actually pays like homage to cross country, that they celebrate <laughs> it, that they have a collection of apparel that is dedicated to that. So look for that in mid-August. You can check it all out at tracksmith.com slash Mario. And if you buy anything from Tracksmith and you are a new customer, when you check out, if you use the code Mario New, that's M-A-R-I-O, capital N-E-W. That will save you $15 on your first purchase of $75 or more. And if you're already a Tracksmith customer, you can use the code Mario Give. That's Mario, M-A-R-I-O, and then capital G-I-V-E. I think all of those letters have to be capitalized. Don't quote me on that. Um, you'll get free shipping on your next order and 5% of your purchase, you don't have to do anything, um, will go to the charity of my choosing, which is the Friendly House in Worcester, Massachusetts. I practically grew up there. I went there after school. I went there for summer camp. I played bitty basketball there. They do a lot for, again, back to community in Worcester, Massachusetts, where I am from. Um, you know, I wouldn't be the person that I am today without the influence of the Friendly House and the great people that I've met there. So, I am like incredibly thrilled that a percentage of purchases will go um, to support an organization that is very near and dear to me. So you can do that at tracksmith.com slash Mario. Love it. Yeah, up next, we have Gooder. Gooder, the best sunglasses in the game. Also, some of the most affordable performance sunglasses in the game. I've been wearing Gooders for a long time when I go running, when I drive in the car, when I'm walking the dog. Um, I mean, I've got multiple pairs of them around my house because I lose them often, but they're only 25 to 35 bucks a piece. So they're super affordable, but they come in a lot of cool styles, colors. They're polarized, so they will protect your eyes um, as Long-time listeners will know I'm a big fan of the OGs. That is the only style that I personally wear, but they have others. You can check them out on their website. Um, I stick to you know pretty basic colors. Um, a Ginger Soul and Mick and Keith's Midnight Ramble are my favorite colors, basically like black sunglasses, and I think uh, the other ones have a blue tint to them, but check it. <laughs> At check some out, point, at some uh, point, Mario, we're going to get you to branch out because... Uh, not going to happen. Yeah. But check them out for yourself. <laughs> you can do that at gooder.com slash Mario. That's G-O-O-D-R dot com slash Mario. And if you use the code Mario15, that's Mario15, you will get free shipping on your order. Awesome. I think that's all we got for the introduction. Let's get into this conversation. With Jennifer Baskerville Burroughs. Jennifer Baskerville Burroughs. I'm super excited for this conversation. It's a continuation of one that we had offline a couple months ago, and we've been corresponding via email. I looked since 2016, so it's been like a seven-year sort of like, yeah, I know, right? Um, Ongoing conversation at this point, and I just really enjoyed those exchanges, and I think you have just a really like unique perspective on running and the community and what's happening in the space. So I couldn't be more thrilled to welcome you to the Morning Shakeout podcast. Well, thank you so much, Mario. And I have to say, this is a bit of a um, sort of a fangirling dream come true for me because I have been. Oh, stop. No, seriously. I mean, since the issue one of the newsletter and um, having read you before a competitor. And so to be on your, a guest on your podcast, which I've been listening to since your first episode, has been like, it's all the things. So thank you for having me. 
Well, I appreciate that. And just to tease uh, this for everyone who is listening, this is going to be part one of a two-part conversation. And we have not recorded the second part. We're going to do that in November. And we'll tee up why here in a few moments. But really, in, in this conversation, I want to get to know more about you. I want my listeners to get to know more about you. And then we'll set up what the second part of our conversation is going to be about. So just to to kick things off, I mean, I know you as like, so you're you're a bishop. Uh, that is that is how you spend your working hours that you're calling in life. So to me, you're you're the running bishop. Uh, that's what I I mean. That's what I refer to you refer to you as. But tell us a little bit more just about yourself and how you spend your time. Okay, so um, as you mentioned, I am a bishop in the Diocese of Indianapolis, which is a region in the Episcopal Church, which covers Central and Southern Indiana. And so one way to think about it is, is bishop is the Greek word for oversight or um, over, just sort of over caregiver. And so I'm the chief pastor for those in the Episcopal Church and others who want to be a part of us for two-thirds of our state. And it's not something that as a child I thought, well, I'm going to grow up to be a bishop. Very few people think that, but it's something that my life has steadily sort of led me to over the, the decades. And so I've been here since 2017, and I get to support people as they journey in their faith life and as they try to make the world a better place in the name of Jesus and, and anybody who wants to come along. So we collaborate and partner with people of all faiths and none in order to try to transform the world for the better. Well, let's walk that backward a bit. How did you end up where you are today? You didn't foresee it coming when you were younger, but I mean, here you are overseeing this entire diocese. Yes. So my, um, so I'm from New York City. One of the things I always like to tell people who, you know, I'm not a native to Indiana. I'm a native of Brooklyn and Staten Island and Manhattan and grew up wanting to be a librarian and a journalist. I mean, all these other things, an architect, went to college to study architecture and urban planning and thought that was going to be my career. I was mm-hmm. on my way to graduate school and um, along the way had joined the Episcopal Church in, in college, basically, and was invited after college, after I graduated, to the, what we call discern, a call to priesthood, which I did for a very long time. I was a priest serving congregations across the United States. But at but at the very beginning, I thought, I want to look at buildings and design great places for people to live. and or renovate places that people can enjoy for the longer haul. So did that and then discovered that through some mentors of mine who were really good at guiding me that I could do both preservation and building work and church. And so that's been a lot of what my life has been like serving congregations, trying to renew communities, both um, the religious community and the spaces, the community buildings and neighborhoods that people live in. But I've been running since college all along the way through that. And so it's this interesting thing that um, when I talk about my past, I often say I had these these dual tracks. But in some ways, mm-hmm. it's been a three-part track because this desire to be in the athletic space has been there all along, too. We're going to dive into that later in in this conversation, but I know you've lived in quite a few places. I mean, at one point in the Bay Area, which I want to get into because we've shared that over email, just various places that we've, you know, we've both run at different periods in time. But how long have you been in Indianapolis? 2017? Is That's right. Yep. 2017. And before that, I was in Chicago, which was an amazing fast five years working for the bishop 
of Chicago from 2012 to 2017. Yeah. Yeah. And with your posts as a bishop, is it a set period of time that you're in that role? Is it fairly fluid? Like, will you be in Indianapolis for quite a while at, at this point? I mean, yeah. shed some light on that for me. Well, so that's the funny thing. After living in, I had like 20 moves or something in my life, but now I'm just, I mean, just apartments and just moving around within cities, but lots of places I've lived and now I'm here for the duration. So in the Episcopal Church, the, the bishop has tenure, so I will... Mm-hmm. Um, retire from this position at some point in the future. Um, and you mentioned, you know, we'll talk a little bit about my sabbatical, but this time of break right now that I'm on as we're recording this is one of the things we do to stay healthy in what's a very long and intense ministry. So um, mm-hmm. I'll be here for a while. Yeah. In all the places that you've been, it sounds like you're going to be in the Indianapolis area for a while. What feels like home to you? <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, um, I, I would say Indianapolis feels like home and what, but it's, um, I laugh because I think I would love to have a really ready made easy answer to that. And I'm not mm-hmm. sure I do because there are so many places that when I go there, I feel like I'm home, even though I don't live there anymore. You know? yeah. um, but what makes a place feel like home to you? <sighs> feeling like I'm known and feeling like I know where to find the places that give me life and energy. And, um, and that's why I guess the answer is complicated because when I go home to New York city and I, I will often say I live in Indiana, but I'm from New York city, but I would not say New York city's home. So it's this really funny thing, but, um, but there are places that feel like, you know, they're as home there in New York city as they do here in Indianapolis, as it does when I go back and visit, Berkeley, California, where I lived for a number of years. And because I know the running routes, I know the places to get my good coffee at my scone. I know people, I'm going to run into people on the street (laughs) and like that kind of familiarity makes me feel grounded and and at home. Yeah. When you really got into the church, like what was the appeal for you? I mean, aside from faith, I mean, church is known for being a a community in many places. I mean, take me down that road a little bit, because I think that's going to be one of the through lines of the the rest of this conversation. Yeah, you know, I, um, one of the things that surprises people because I'm so much into the, into the church is that I did not grow up in in any faith, really. I I tell Mm -hmm. people we grew up culturally Christian because we were not Jewish. We were not, um, I mean, Muslim, we were just people who we celebrated Christmas, but we didn't go to church except for special occasions or when invited by other people, other relatives. So I grew up with a longing to go because I thought, well, this is a place where there's fun things happening. And from a child's point of view, right? Like there was a sense of people looking forward to seeing each other every week and there was good food after the church service and service didn't make a lot of sense to me, but there was something about the way people came together that as a child, I remember wanting and then mm-hmm. um, I, even though I didn't go to church, I, I talked to God a lot. Like I had a, a spiritual life that I can remember um, as a child and wanting to put that in the ways that it seemed to make sense to me, which is like, well, you go to church, but we didn't do that. So I didn't end up going to church or finding the Episcopal Church until high school um, in Washington, D.C. And once I found the Episcopal Church at St. John's Lafayette Square on a field tr- on a leadership trip, 
I said, well, I feel like I, I can belong here. Like this is like the deepest sense of being at home, really. I mean, honestly, in the spiritual sense that I had ever experienced. And so when I got to college, um, after that senior trip, I went off and found the Episcopal Church, which was right on campus, and it became my spiritual home and a place I could not not return to. You know, it just yeah. took a hold of me. How did that transition into ministry? Well, the, um, the funny thing is, it's like I what I found when I graduated from college, moved back to New York City, started going to Trinity Church, Wall Street, Manhattan, and like the people there began, began to be like my people, right? Like I, mm-hmm. they became, became the center of my universe, really. Like I had friends from college, I had other friends from work, and then the folks at church who began to be my primary community in a lot of ways. And so I started doing, I started singing in the choir and I was acolyting and I started a young adult group because I, I was 20 something hanging with all these 40 year olds who seemed ancient at the time, but I wanted to like have all these other young adults. <laughs> and so you know, I joined this, I put together this young adult group that connected with other young adults and we would do volleyball matches and softball games at Central Park. And it was just so much fun. And by doing that, other clergy, clergy had said to me, you know, have you ever thought about being a priest? Because you seem to be spending a lot of time here. Like, you know, don't you, there's something in God's doing something with you. Let's talk about it. And that put me on the journey towards priesthood, which rocked my world because it was not my plan. Like, Mm-hmm. Honest to God, like I, I laugh all the time. Like this is not. I was known as someone who would plan out their life, and people would make a make fun of me and call it the agenda. Like I had an agenda I would lay out for my life, and this was not on it. And all of a sudden, I was sort of knocked down a bit, and it's like, okay, I guess we're gonna discern that and see. And thirty years later, here we are. Yeah. So it was really a calling. Yeah, yeah. It, cer- it certainly was, and like the community said, we see something in you. And you may not, you know, and there was something in there, which I thought, you know, there was a little something in me that maybe sensed it, but didn't want to go there because it would mean changing what I thought my life would be. Mm -hmm. Um, But that sense of being called into, um, called out of the thing I thought I was going to do into something else um, is certainly a part of it. Yeah. To do a little thought experiment, do you think you would have gone down that path if not for the encouragement of others in the church? Who saw what you were doing? Um, I I think I probably would have. I don't think it would it may have happened that early. Mm. You know, I mean, I was literally like preparing grad school applications <laughs> to go to get my preservation degree, and and in the midst of that, they said, "Well, you know, priesthood, right? Like, how about that?" And I thought, "Well, no, because like, do you see the applications? <laughs> I'm I'm moving in this direction, but um, a, a wise priest." who I came back into touch with had said, you know, there are all of these people who do architecture and art and design and they're, they do it in the religious space. And I, I found this whole new world of people who care about this particular nexus of things that I also cared about. And it changed everything. I thought, okay, I can preserve church buildings. Like I don't have to give up a thing. I could do both. And that was life changing, but I don't know if I would have come to that as quickly. I mean, I was 23 Mm-hmm. 24 years old at the time, so pretty young. Okay. Let's um, go down the two other paths that you have followed, and, and we'll start with running. And I guess just sport in general. Have you always been an athlete or someone who's had an interest in athletics? Nope. <laughs> so, I like, this is going to sound like so many other people. Like, I was the 
totally accident prone, clumsy, last person picked for the team kid. Like I just, I'm chubby. I mean, just not that athletic. And I looked up to some of the girls who would get on the softball team every summer. And I just, I was never in that world. And so by the time I got to high school, I remember, um, you had to do a sport and I didn't want to go to gym. And so the way to get out of gym was to join a team. (laughs) So, So I joined the bowling team freshman year. And then I joined the tennis team, which is how I learned how to play tennis because I loved, I was in love with um, tennis at the time and, um, you know, Yvonne Lendl and all these folks. So that became my way into athletics and feeling like movement was something that brought me joy and that I could, even though I didn't excel at it, I loved working at it um, mm-hmm. and be- and claiming that identity as like, oh, I'm a tennis player like that. Yeah. I remember that shift, but that was by junior year of high school. But until then, I mean, it never, I would never have put athlete or that kind of term next to my name. Yeah. Not to skip over too much, but now, I mean, I think of you as a, a runner. You're the running bishop for me. Is that a part of your identity and how you think of yourself? It is now. It is now, but it, it's, you know, it's funny. I, it, it, it's a long time in coming. And so mm-hmm. when I went to college, um, I wanted to row crew because the one of the women in the women's gold winning um, boat in the 84 Olympics was um, the crew coach at Smith College where I went. So I thought, OK, I'll try out for crew. But I was five, five and a half and really not all that athletic. So like I was playing tennis, but I wasn't like a crew person. But I thought I'm going to try it. And did it for like, I don't know, four or five months at first semester and then was cut because I was not going to make the varsity boat or junior varsity boat. So I hated running so much, though. Running was painful for me so much that I borrowed somebody else's bike all semester to bike to the boathouse instead of running to the boathouse like everybody else did. Boathouse is like two and a half miles away. And the idea was that if you ran to the boathouse, then the van would bring you back. But I just uh, biked okay. both ways because I wanted to avoid the running. <laughs> so so I, I did not run until my senior year in college where, um, inspired by one of my dorm mates, housemate Suzanne, uh, Suzanne Gardner, she was a runner and she would go out and just run. And I would say to her, you're just going to run? Like, you're not going anywhere? You're just going to run end up in the same place that you started (laughs) out from yeah like there's no like thing you're gonna do when you get there you're just gonna run for it so but i i was in awe of her dedication to it and so by my senior year i borrowed a friend's shoes because i don't have running shoes i borrowed my friend patty's running shoes there was a pair of brooks that we wore the same size and i started to run for about it was like a 25 minute run three days a week and something about that maybe because my life was in transition like I was about to graduate, you know, like I feel like there are these transitional moments where mm-hmm. things are I'm more open to things, but that did it. So I, I mean, religiously three days a week, I would run and, um, I would put on, I had my Walkman, I would put on U2's, the Joshua tree, uh, yeah, the Joshua tree album. And I would just do this thing and I loved it. And that became my, I mean, but it, it became such a thing of like, I have to do this that, by the time I got to, by the time I graduated and moved back home, because I didn't have the job of my dreams yet, and so I had to like eat crow a little bit and move back home to the apartment where, where I'd grown up and temp a little while. Um, I uh, I would go to this park across the street from the housing projects where we were living, 
and just do loops and just run because this was like it became this thing that if nothing if everything else was going to change i had this piece of stability that made me feel amazing and um and 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 at that point i began to say oh yeah i'm a runner like that's this is something i do yeah and at that point was it a completely solo pursuit or would you ever run with other people only so no chance oh yeah no no like earlier the morning like don't see me <laughs> like would not run with other people and i mean part of it too is that going back to new york and my family and my neighborhood like nobody really ran people who were right. like running to because they were going to the boxing ring like those were runners like these guys but nobody was running like there were no models for that and so i felt like you know i'd go and do this really strange thing that was normal at college but like going back to the neighborhood I grew up in, people were like, what, is, what, <laughs> what, what's, what's up with that? So I didn't run with people and, um, it would be another over a decade before I would actually run with other people. Yeah. Yeah. So what did running make you feel at that point of your life? I mean, you just mentioned how it was a period of transition. You were trying to figure out how you were going to you know, live this life that you had, had put on your agenda uh, that you were talking about earlier. So was it like, like just what was it for you at at that point? You know, I, um, let's see. I, I think part of it must've been like, I felt really good doing it. Like Mm -hmm. it felt like it was a way for me to stay healthy and to stay in my, in like in my head in a different way, you know, or to just not think about the things that were not going the way I thought they were going to go at that time, you know, initially speaking, you know, and then it became a way of me just once I got the job and moved out and got my own apartment, I thought I would run in my new neighborhood in Staten Island. And it became a way of decompressing at the end of a day. I would run after mm-hmm. sometimes. So, um, but for, I don't know, in some ways it was just like, here's a thing that I do that reminds me of how good I felt back when I was in college, when things were Mm -hmm. like great, you know, and before things were like, who knows what's going to happen with the future. And so I don't know for, there's a sense of which I'm not sure if I can fully explain it, but there was a piece of me that I wanted to be that running connected to. And whenever Mm -hmm. I did it, I thought, Oh yeah, this is a, this is a, this is the me I want to be. And I can feel that when I'm running. Yeah. And at this point, I mean, racing's not a thing. I mean, <laughs> training, training in, in air quotes is, is no. not a thing. You just went out. Were you still sticking to just like three days a week and kind of the same distance or the same route, depending where you lived? Or would you switch things up and like some days maybe run a little bit faster just for variety sake or some days go a little bit longer? Or was it just pretty It uniform? was the same thing. And and the thing is, Mario, the, you know, I, I mentioned about like me feeling like I'm a, in my mind, up until not that long ago, I was still this clumsy, accident-prone, overweight person that was just like, I'm just going to do this thing. And if nothing else, I'll do this thing. So there was nothing. I didn't know anything about those things. I I had friends. I had gone to races. One of my best friends um, was from New Jersey, and her father ran. And I remember going to the one of the races in Central Park that he did. And it was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> like, that's not like, I'm not, that's weird. I'm not going to do that. And so I didn't even have the desire for that until much later. 
Yeah. So to bring it back to identity, you thought of yourself as a runner, but those other runners who did races and marathons and all that, they were, what, what were they? Were, were they also runners? I'm, I'm just super curious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I would probably say that I thought those were runners and I was a person who run, who ran, right? Like, okay. you know, like the semantic thing, like, but it was, um, something I was owning my identity, but I didn't see myself as doing the same thing they were doing. I didn't look like them. I didn't, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't have, um, I'm trying to remember what I even wore at those. I mean, I I don't even know what I had for um, shorts at that point because I had a hard time finding running shorts that fit me. I didn't find a good pair of running shorts until I was in Berkeley, like in the nineties going to seminary. So it was, you know, started running in 83 and I, I just, I think there was a, like I had not gone to, I think I'd gone to a running store, so Foot Locker maybe to get a, a, my own pair of running shoes, but everything, all the other parts of it seemed like not the thing that I was doing. And mm-hmm. um, I think probably I had a hard time because I was um, pretty heavy at the point, at that point, didn't have the ability to find clothes that I would even think to try on, you know, that would work for me as a runner at the time. So th- yeah. that, those those people are doing other things than what I was doing. Yeah, it's it's interesting for me to to think about. I mean, one, I'm just a bit younger than you. Um, you know, two, I'm I'm a male, and my entry point into the sport was like joining the cross country team to keep in shape for basketball, and it was like competitive from you know sort of day one, and just like different eras. And I'm thinking about like you know the world we live in now, and like the world that you were living in back then. It's like there was no you know, internet, there was no smartphones, there was no, I mean, there were, there were communities, which I do want to talk about. There were no like online communities where you could, you know, read about someone on the other side of the country and be like, oh, they're kind of like me. Um, and like, maybe I can be inspired by them or, or learn something from them. And, um, it's just like really just fascinating to hear you just describe your experience because it was so unique. And for you, I mean, for so long, it was just deeply personal. It wasn't a community thing. It wasn't a race that you're, you're training for. You weren't necessarily part of something bigger. It was just something that made you feel good and like, you know, helped you to move forward through your life. Yeah, no, that's, that's um, exactly right. And I, I mean, I remember I had a classmate who um, was put trained and was running the Boston Marathon and the whole school got behind her. And it was like, oh, that's really great. What's the Boston Marathon? Like I, years later, I'm like, oh my gosh, I should have gone. I was at school in Northampton. I could have just like, it didn't, it just felt felt like this other thing, you know? And in my mind, I thought, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to still practicing on the tennis court and getting in the crew boat every now and again for fun. And at that point running wasn't the thing. And then when I graduated, like running was probably still all around me in New York city and yet it was not, it was this distant thing. And then when I went to grad school, I went to Ithaca for grad school in um, 1992 and, and continued to run, started rowing with the club there and running was like other people ran. So that became like, oh yeah, now I'm a little bit more like other people I see and know. But I, I feel like it was this gradual thing of seeing more and more people and probably because more and more people were running and, you know, college yeah. people are going to be running everywhere. Yeah. But it was like a slow burn for me to kind of yeah. on that. And at the time you would just see them. You wouldn't necessarily join them. It was still just you. Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, I, I'm pretty sure like I would do like short, like with the, the club, the Cascadilla 
boat club I ran with, like we, I rode with, we would have practices and we would run right. stairs. But that was it. Like if I was going to go for a run to stay in shape for rowing, I was not going to do it with other people. And part of it was like, I didn't think I could even keep up with other people, right? Mm-hmm. Staying with folks. I mean, it just didn't even occur to me. And nobody was inviting me to say, hey, do you want to come run with me also? Like yeah. it wasn't like it was going the other way. Okay. Let's put a pin in that. I want to come back to running. So we've talked about your journey through the Episcopal Church and faith and how that's part of your life. Talked about running and just how you got into it. We'll expand upon that. So this this third path, correct me if I'm wrong, is sort of the like kind of architecture design interest path that you took interest in early on in your life and thought you were going to go down yeah. a different road than than you did. Where did where did that interest start for you? Um, that started. Um kind of started in high school. I went to high school in uh, a graphic arts high school because I thought I was going to be a journalist. So I, I studied newspaper journalism and thought that was the path. Then decided, you know, I don't know, but I went to college thinking maybe journalism, government. But at the time I, I had dated a guy who was going off to Parsons for design. And for our dates, we would go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and go to the American Way. Or we would look at you know, we'd go and look at some new construction happening in Midtown Manhattan. So when I got to college and I had to figure out what I wanted to major in, and I was all over the place, you know, and there was some pressure, like, what do you, what do you want to major in? And it wasn't what I thought. I finally said, you know, I should just do what, I, what I'm interested in. So I took a class in um, the history of, of regional planning and landscape design, sort of across Europe, and loved it so much that I declared my major, like, the end of my freshman year. And that became the window to everything for me, just studying architecture, urban studies, like why are cities the way they are? What's the story of poverty and progress and all of these things, which I love to think about. And um, it it became really clear early that I was not going to be a designer because I had no design jobs. Okay. And I was like, okay, so then what what else is there to do? (laughs) Right. And so I, I interned at, the Cooper Hewitt Museum and interned at the Municipal Art Society and did like was trying to figure it out. And by the time I graduated, I thought historic preservation was the way. So it was clear that somehow doing building preservation, which at Cornell is embedded in the, in the regional planning department, I thought, okay, this is it. So when someone said, well, don't you want to be a priest? Could you think about that? I was like, uh, came out of left field. Yeah. It came out of left field. But then I thought, um, you know, there are so many church buildings, like I could study that and how to preserve those buildings. And that became right. like, that just, that was a life changing epiphany really, because it said to me that I didn't have to live a life that was one foot in one place and another foot in another place. I could break them together because if I was going to be a priest, if that was where God and people were leading me, you know, they have to worship somewhere and there are all these buildings. So I would always have this information, this, this um, expertise that might be helpful. Yeah, so you're thinking about these churches, these buildings, mm-hmm. as community gathering spaces. Exactly. Right? Okay. Um, I Now, <laughs> I know you a little bit better than most of the people who are listening to this, but I'm, I'm seeing like these three paths like converge right now. Um, and it's super, it's super fascinating. So it's like, you know, you you develop this interest, uh, and carry it through, you know, through college, you know, you find running like toward the end of high school, it's something that like kind of carries through, through college, but it's, you know, it's like deeply yours. Um, and then, you know, someone says, think about being, 
you know, a priest and like maybe running didn't enter that part of the equation. Maybe that's, I, I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe that's where, you know, you thought about these things like out on the run where, you know, it's like, okay, I mean, I think that's, that probably resonates with most people listening. That certainly does for me. It's like, okay, I've got this big like life decision or something I need to contemplate. Absolutely. And I'll do that. Yeah. I'll like do that on the run. And, you know, lo and behold, it puts you on this path to being clergy member in the Episcopal Church, and now you're you're a bishop, and running doesn't directly tie into that, but running has a community aspect to it. Right. Uh, and the church has a community aspect to it. And um we're gonna get we're gonna get to where these these two places meet here in in a bit. But for you, like bringing it back to running, like it's deeply personal. You're not running with other people at all. Like what was your first exposure to like the running community where you got to share in it with other people? So um, I will never forget the first time I ran with other people. I can almost, I can probably find the date, but the year was 1995. And okay. I had gone back to Chicago for, it's 95, maybe been fall of 96, for the National Trust Historic Preservation Conference happening in Chicago. And, um, and this was like, it reminds me of how much it takes to summon up the courage to run with other people, or at least it did for me. You know, it's a preservation conference. People are talking about buildings and all the things that historic preservationists talk about. And someone said, hey, we're going to get together in the lobby and go out for a run along the lakefront at 7 a.m. And I said, yes. <laughs> now, at this point, I had been running at, at, at grad school. In, I mean, I was in seminary at the time. So I was running on my own through the hills of Berkeley, Royal Cerrito. And um, I said yes to this run. And it was the hardest thing. I mean, like I got there and the fear that I, I, I still harbor to this day is that will I be able to keep up and talk with people mm. while we run? And, um, and I was able to do it. Like I ran with these folks and I, you know, and there are people like, oh, you know, it's a fun run. We're not racing. We're just going to kind of do this thing. And I survived it and thought, oh, that was actually a lot of fun. <laughs> like I could keep up. I didn't keep up with everybody. Like there are people who went on to talk with other people and, but I yeah. wasn't alone. I didn't, I mean, I was gasping for breath at some point. I was probably running a little harder than, and I didn't ever talk before. So this running and talking thing, I had to figure that out. Like yeah. Breathing <laughs> and running and still talking, you know, um, I had to figure that out, but I thought, okay, this, this, this is okay. I can do this. And it would be a long time before I would run with other people again. But one of the things that it did was it ignited in me this desire to, um, to like not have the athletic thing be like just for me alone solo. Yeah. You know, like all of a sudden I thought, well, it is much more fun with other people. Why don't I figure that? I mean, I don't think consciously I said, let me figure it out. But by the time I went to my first church in New York and people saw me as a runner there. They were like, oh, you like to work out. You're always running. Like, what's going on? Then I began to see opportunities for asking people in the church communities I serve to join me. Yeah. And that changed changed a lot of things for me. Yeah. So for you, running with other people at that conference, you experienced running in a different way. And it sort of opened your eyes to, oh, this can be so much more than just me going out a few times a week to be with myself. Like I can be a part of something bigger. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate you sharing your experience because I, I know there are a lot of people who are, are listening to this, who in their own way feel the same thing. They may go out and just run on their own. Oftentimes 
at hours where no one else will see them because maybe it's not shame, but they're afraid of how they might be perceived. They don't feel like they belong. Maybe they live in a place where other people don't run, so they just kind of want to slide, mm-hmm. you know, slide under the radar type of thing. Um, but they'll see running groups. And I mean, I see this uh, with the group that I work with on, on Wednesday nights in San Francisco. We have people who show up for the first time, and we have people of all ages, ability level ethnicities, experience levels. Um, we have people who come in and they're stepping on a track for the first time. And I, and that can be a very intimidating Oof. thing, never mind just like going for a run with people. Um, but then they realize, oh, there's someone here at my speed. And the group, even if it's large or small, like they feel welcome and all of a sudden it's it's less intimidating. And they feel like even just in that initial interaction, they feel a part of something bigger. They feel, you know, a part of a community, like they belong in a place. And and I feel like this is um, one of the challenges just in society in general, which I want to talk about, because it's something that you're um, experiencing in your church life. But I also see it in, in running. Many people who, you know, who do run, but they don't feel like they can call themselves a runner or a part of the running community, because oftentimes it is an intimidating intimidating place yeah no that's the, um <laughs> exactly as you're talk, talk, sort of spinning that out i'm thinking oh yeah like it's like all the things that can get in the way of stepping into mm-hmm. this new thing and so much of it i recognize is is just the stuff in our head right and i don't yeah. know if i mean i'm not sure it'll ever fully go away for me right so uh, here's sure. a here's a confession i'll make so, like, I did um, some travel, and Tracksmith has all of these runs out of their various track houses, and I haven't gone because I'm like, I don't think I could. I go back to being that person who never ran with a running group before when I think about it. And then yeah. when I saw their Twilight 5000, and they had a heat that begins with those who could do a five, you know, 5K in 45 minutes, I thought, well, oh, my God, I should just go. Like, what? I mean, you know, because I'm not as fast as I used to be. Like, all the things that get in the way. Sure. You're going to be, and I, I know there, there are going to be folks who are super fast, and I'm not worried about trying to keep up with those folks. It's all about how I think I feel in my body, and do I feel like I can belong as much as other folks? And the world is communicating that there is room. Like, you can, it doesn't matter what your pace is, we're going to make room. And I have to say to myself, get out of your head, just go and take down the barrier that you're putting up for yourself from stepping into that spot. Like they're, they're opening the door. You just have to go through. Why are you stopping yourself? But it's yeah. an old tape that constantly needs um, tinkering with to get it out of, out of my head. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that confession. Cause I, <laughs> I hear that every week um, with the group that, that I work with because it is, you know, open to anyone who, who shows up. And the thing I tell people more often than not is change the the narrative of your story, that story that you're, yeah. you know, that you're telling yourself, because I'll, I'll listen to them, but like, yep, yep, yep. This is like, <laughs> this is all, this is all you. Um, but if you flip that, um, you know, then you're going to be more willing to like, maybe show up again or realize like, oh, there is someone here who's my pace or bring someone else along too, you know, and help yeah. them feel, feel welcome. So I, I mean, I think it's it is very like nuanced, but I do think that is you know a part of it, and probably something a lot of people struggle with. Where, like you said, they have to play the tape over and over and over again. Uh, even though, I mean, at this point, you know, it's been thirty something years for you, uh, and it's still like, yep, still got to tell my, I still got to like tell myself that story that I belong. There are people here for me, um, and you know, this is a this is a, a welcoming community when it comes down to it. 
Yeah, exactly. No, it's a, you know, and I think that's part of just being a, um, I mean, part of everyone's got their own inter- internal work to do, right? Like if we're paying mm-hmm. attention and trying to grow and to be a part of this world that has a lot of issues to be sure, but there's a lot of great things in it too. And, um, it, it can be really easy just to retreat and just say, okay, I'm just going to stay home or stay on the couch and not ever do a thing. But I think calling, I mean, at least for me and part of my role is to help people find their capacity to do whatever they might want to dream about doing. Right? Yeah. Um, so, so you have this one-off experience in Chicago mm-hmm. at a conference and you said it was a while before you ran with other people again, and you've bounced around a lot, you know, between going to, to seminary and various posts that, that you've held. When did you start to experience community on a consistent basis related to running? Yeah, I would say um, related to running, particularly, it would probably be in 20, in 2009, so um, I have a, a, there was a woman who was a member of my parish in Syracuse, the church I was serving. I was half-time chaplain at Syracuse University, half-time head pastor at Grace Church. And um, Rachel said, I'm going to train for a half marathon. Why don't you come with me and just like come and run with me? Because I know you run. <laughs> and I mean, I would do the Utica Boilermaker every year. Mm-hmm. And just, um, so I would, you know, at this point I'm right, I'm going to a race every now and again. I think that was my it may have been my first race was the Boilermaker, which is a 15 K that's a, yep. but my fr- but other parishioners were doing it. So I kind of, I did that. So, but I, you know, I, I would go back to running my three miles every couple of, every few days and going to the gym. So I was, you know, I mean, I was a big step aerobics person. Like there were a lot of other things I was doing, but running was this other thing. So Rachel said, come with me and train with me. So I began to do that with her and, um, and we would talk and all of a sudden I got, faster i started running longer she um she I, I kept trying to keep up with her training so that i could run with her i didn't run a half marathon until year, years later but it got me in shape enough and and confident enough and in love with the longer d- distances like i you know running more than three miles was a big thing that all of a sudden i thought oh i want more of this and so yeah another friend said, Hey, I'm signing up for a triathlon. Why don't you sign up for, with me? And I said, I said, yes. And so we began to train in the February, 2010 for the, um, iron girl, uh, sprint triathlon in Syracuse. And that because of the signing up for the thing and discovering that the, ro- the local running store had a team, I joined that team and that blew my mind. Like all of a sudden I had a coach, I had, other middle-aged women at this point, I'm one of my 43, 44, 43, um, other people, my age, um, and up and down the chain, older and younger. And we would gather and I learned some things about warming up and how to ride a bike, how to get, I mean, you know, as an, like an adult racing a bike. And I just like, that sucked me in. And that fleet feet triathlon team to this day remains my pinnacle experience of what a team was. And yeah. it became everything. And, um, and in all the best ways that team can be such that I went back to the church I was serving and I said, Hey, why don't we start a triathlon team <laughs> within the congregation? And I had started, like I had a cycling club at a church in New Jersey. I started a tennis club. I mean, I, I always wanted to move with people, but um, yeah. creating a team of folks who not only just came on church to church on Sunday morning, but we would run together or we would, 
support each other at various races. The best, the absolute best was like, now I had, like, I loved being with people all the time yeah. as I ran. One comment, one question. Okay. Comment being, it sounds like just running with your friend and then eventually being a part of the tri team just opened your eyes that this could be so much more than what your experience of running or just sport was. And that excitement just grew and snowballed where you're like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And I mean, I I think like I'm nodding my head here and I think a lot of people listening to this are probably nodding their head as well, because at some point of their own journey, they've, they've experienced the the same thing. And I've certainly seen it um, with my Wednesday night group and even the individual athletes that you know, that I coach when they feel like, oh, well, this is, this is bigger than, than just me. And there's more out there and I can challenge myself in new ways and I can experience different things, um, and form deeper connections with people. It just like brings them down the line. I think that's beneficial. My, my question is, is did starting that, you know, triathlon club within your congregation or cycling club within your congregation, I mean, that congregation's already an established community, your church community. Right. Did you find that, that, maybe deepened those connections even more by adding this other element to it? It did. I mean, to, it, one of the things, I'm not sure, um, I, would, I would go back to say 2000, maybe the year 2000, 2001, when I started cycling regularly mm-hmm. and um, I would go out with a parishioner who would take me through the um, horse country roads of Northern New Jersey where I was working at the time, I was serving a church in Morristown, New Jersey at the time. And Richard and I would go out and I said, well, why don't we invite other people? And I was doing some mountain biking every now and again. And I thought like, let's get as many people as possible. And we, you know, it's like once a month, we'd have a day, like a Saturday, we'd go out for a long ride. And it was just like, I'm spending time with folks who I was serving as a priest that I would never get. Like, you know, the mm-hmm. whole point of ministry is to be able to walk with people and to know them and to have them know that they've got a safe place to to um, wrestle with the deep questions of life. And Sunday morning is not the time. I mean, there's too much going on. Like there's, you know, all the things with church school and people going out to brunch afterwards. Like you don't get folks. But this all of a sudden on these Saturday rides, we had hours to know about each other and to t- and to laugh and to talk about the issues of the day. And so it, it was precious time that um, I, I discovered early on was like, if I could do the thing that I love to do, like, I'm not going to make it up and do something that just like, we should have a team and let's make up something that isn't interesting to me. It, it had to be something that was my passion that I knew other people might also be interested in. And then once we did that, it just made everything better across the line. I got healthier. So my congregational relationships were deeper. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, that's just really, really amazing. And and I guess what I'm curious about next is, I mean, you spoke at the beginning of this conversation how when you found the Episcopal Church, like it was a, a community for you, like mm-hmm. you felt this sense of, of belonging almost immediately. And fast forward several years, you seem to have found the, the same thing in some ways in parallel with the church, but also integrated with it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that's, I mean, there's something like the, the taste of belonging. I don't know that's not quite the words I want to use, but like, you know, like once you have a sense of what that feels like, it becomes, I think for most of us, like human beings want to belong and be connected, right? And I found that I would do anything to make that happen because the on the other side of it, like I've experienced times when I've 
you know, I've lived alone before I was married and like, it was lonely. Like I know what loneliness and isolation feels like. And, um, I always wanted the other thing. And once I found out what that felt like really, and it's not like it was like one 40 year journey of belongingness, like there are ebbs and flows and all of those things too. But replicating that sense of connection has been something that's been like, it's in my bones, like looking for that, trying to create it if I can't find it. Yeah. I think this is a good segue. We've talked about like your connection and how you feel that deep belonging in a community. And I mean, it's crazy, like just thinking about it relative to this conversation, because just in like the last few weeks, I've seen like all of these headlines. I mean, I have one right in front of me. Um, Why so many Americans have stopped going to church. Um, Oh my God. It's in the thing. And I mean, so you've, you know, been on this journey of, of faith, you've been leading congregations for a few decades now. Like what, what have you just observed in that world over the last, I mean, certainly few decades, but even more so just the last 10 years or so. Have you seen that up front? Oh my gosh. I don't even know where to begin with all that, Mario. I, because this is like the stuff that I, I I'm trying to Wrestle figure with out every day. all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, um, here's a couple of things I would say just off the top. Sure. I think as some of these articles point out, the reasons why people go to church or participate in whatever kind of corporate institutional religious experience they have are really varied. But for, mainline Christianity for a really long time, belonging was not why people went, really. Like, they went to, they said, you could say you belong to a community, but the primary reason for going was, like, me and God, and then, like, all of the social um, benefits of being associated with this particular congregation, which gives me support for my family, support for my, you know, children if I have them, support for my faith and being of having a place to worship. But it wasn't like, I want to go and know that people can understand me from the inside out and they really know me. And I feel like I belong that way. I do think there are so many people who do want that. And the crisis of the church right now is that folks have a desire to be known in that more intimate, deep way where they can be real. As people tell me, they, they're like, we, we just want to be real. And sometimes people don't feel like they can be real at church because you got to dress up and you got to sort of, all of the things that people may feel like um, they need to present themselves as when they go into a corporate worship space. And so that stuff, that old way, those old reasons, I think is just, it's going away. And I'm like, I'm not mad about it, (laughs) but the structure is still built up to kind of keep that old way going. And there's a whole bunch of folks saying, I want a different thing. So this de-churching or whatever it is that's happening, I think is just everything kind of, being mixed up a bit to see what's going to settle out eventually. And I'm really clear that, but by the time I retire, resign as Bishop, like, I don't know what the landscape's going to look like, but if at the end of the day, I have a hope, you know, with all the buildings and all the stuff that people, you know, they can keep me up at night. At the end of the day, if there are people who know why they get up in the morning, who can talk about their faith in ways that are meaningful and articulate to them and that they feel connected, then I'm good. Like, I think that's all, I mean, you know, I want Jesus to be a part of people's lives, but I want them to feel like they're not just going to do it because everybody else is doing it. It's got to have some, they've got to feel connected deeply. And that means being vulnerable, being able to show all of the 
the stuff that you want to hide to be known, like no matter who you love, like whatever your gender binary, like wherever, like that you are fully loved and welcomed. I'm good. Forget the institutional church, which I'm in charge of right now. Like, (laughs) you know, I'm looking from my office right now at our cathedral. Like it's this beautiful 19th century Gothic revival building and it'll probably be there, you know, forever. And yet if it's empty of people who feel like they really belong to something meaningful, then I'm like, well, you know, that's not, doesn't, what what, what are we doing? So I have a lot of thoughts. It's a hard, hard for me to get at that in a succinct way, but those articles, I think, are hinting at some of the stuff pretty. Yeah, I appreciate that perspective because if I, I zoom out a bit, I mean, the other thing we've read about independent from the church is this, this epidemic of loneliness that yeah. people are feeling more than ever. And obviously we had, you know, a global pandemic, which, you know, contributed to that, exacerbated it in in many ways. But I mean, bringing it back to part of my community, like my Wednesday night tracker, I mean, I see people who come every week. And as much as I, as a coach, like to think it's because I write great workouts (laughs) and like, you know, they're getting fitter and and PRing and hopefully they're getting that too. It's because they belong to something. They see a lot of the same people every week. Um, You know, they can put in this work and they see it like pay off, you know, somewhere else, but they form like, we know we've talked about it during this conversation. You run with someone enough, you share enough miles together, especially some of those harder workouts. You get to really understand someone on a, on a pretty deep level. Like you see them in vulnerable moments, you see them in, in challenging moments and you see how they respond to that, you know, type of thing. And I, and I think whether it's said or not, like that creates very, very, you know, deep bonds. So we see that in, in sport certainly, but we see people searching for that in other places. And I've seen people like almost desperate to try and find that in, you know, in some way. And if I share a thought with you on this, it's like, if they do it through running or triathlon or endurance sports, great. They do it through a church or, mm-hmm. you know, um, gathering with a, a group to worship, like, you know, that's fine too. If it's a chess club, awesome. Um, but it's just like giving people more avenues to find that like deep sense of, of community and, and belonging is I think really what we need more of. And so, and so there's a a question and maybe this will get into the things we'll talk about on part two, but you know, um, the places in the religious landscape that I think that are, are working are places where it's not just about the one engagement, right? Like our church communities where people are eating together, like outside of, Sunday morning when, or, or who are doing works of good service in the community because they've got that time. Like you can't just do it in an hour. And I think even, so I wonder like with your track workouts, but those mm-hmm. folks, if they're, they're coming back, maybe they come back just for that, but maybe they're getting together in smaller or like in pairs outside of that to nurture that sense of connection, because that's the thing that keeps you wanting to go when you don't feel like getting up to go. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought that up and and I've observed that to be the case. I mean, many of them they all live in the city of San Francisco, so after the workout, like much like after many of your parishioners would yep. go out for brunch after yes. church, they go out and they get dinner together, but they're also meeting other times during the week and yeah. you know, they're doing other workouts whether it's, you know, on the weekend and the workout is like almost the excuse that that brings them together. But I mean, I joke. I was like, this is a social club with like an endurance sports problem. Um, But if that's the glue that's going to bring people together a few times a week, then that's great because there are some people who come just on Wednesdays and they really look forward to that. And maybe it's the only time during their week because, you know, they, they work a lot, um, may or may not have family, spend a 
lot of time commute, but it's like this is this is my time to feel like a part of of something bigger, um, and that's and that's it. And then other people they do go deeper and they do find other opportunities to you know connect whether it is through a workout but maybe it's just um going out on a you know social saturday evening type of thing um and they're getting together outside of that but it's like that was the you know catalyst that brought them together and and i mean if that's what the workout is serving great then i've you know then i think we've done our job as you know as a as a club as that type of institution yeah no i i, I love that and as you say that the other thing i'm thinking about you kind of hinted it at your in your answer is about time, and this is probably one of the you know the crises of our our time right now this moment in history is that um, it takes time to do all of that. It takes time to, particularly in a place like in the Bay Area where it could take three hours to do that. You know, you're yeah. here for an hour, it takes you an hour to get there, an hour to do the workout, an hour to get home. Like I sat in that traffic, so you got to have time to do that. And that's a luxury. If you're going to do these other t- engagements with people, you have to prioritize like other things are not going to get done. So they, you need time or to make time for it. And, um, and the world will mitigate against that. Like all the, t- like, you know, it, there are a thousand things all the time for everybody and people are pressured. And th- these opportunities though, like for these moments that we can get them for me, I mean, like my shoulders relax just thinking about it. Like, Oh, like I could just be here and nowhere else with these people doing this hard workout or having this post-workout endorphin rush over a meal with folks or, you know, like, and it's so valuable and we know it that I think we keep coming back for it, even as hard as it can be to get it. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with all of that. To round out this conversation and to sort of have our jumping off point for the next conversation. You're wrapping up your sabbatical. You have been off work for a few months now. And how you have decided to spend your time or part of how you've decided to spend your time is by traveling like around the country. You're visiting run clubs and run crews to understand exactly what we were just talking about, identity and belonging and how those are, you know, created and sustained in different places. So without giving it all the way. And I know you're still processing a lot right now. How did you come up with this idea of this is how you wanted to spend your sabbatical? And what maybe were your hypotheses going into your sabbatical and taking this trip around the country and visiting with all these clubs and crews? Well, um, the first thing, it goes back to what I learned when I was trying to declare my major. Like, what do, if I'm going to be off for a few months, like, what do I want to do? Like, I don't want to have to go to classes. I don't want to write a book. I want to be rested so I can come back into this really intense work. So what do I love? I love food. I love running. I love like seeing my people. And so that was the first thing. But I had read um, an article about the ISA run crew in the CLE journal back in the spring, I think. And they just described their Thursday um, sort of supper club where they do a truck workout and then go eat at different places around the city of Philadelphia where they're based. And I thought, I want to know about that because when when I read that article, it sounded to me like church. I'm like, this is what I spent, like, this is what I would love to do. Like, you're doing a hard thing, you're building community, you're exploring your neighborhood, your city, getting to know it. And so the sabbatical time has just been like, how does that work? Like, why, why do people keep coming back for this? What is it about that that feels like what I do, but it's different? Mm-hmm. And how can I learn? And so it's been a great joy to visit groups around the country and to um, and a couple of ones in London to just 
experience it as someone who's stepping in for the first time as like I'm a newcomer everywhere I've gone which is also helpful for me to understand as a bishop because like people are newcomers when they come to church on Sundays often and so you forget what it's like to be a new person in a new space and so I've been learning a lot about how do I feel like I belong when I step into a space that's built for belonging yeah it's it's wild to just think of the parallels that we've talked about in in this conversation. And the the first thing I thought of, too, I mean, it gets thrown around half-jokingly in running circles, is Church of the Sunday Long Run, right? Um, And and we're we're laughing about it, but it is like very similar to the experience that you just described. I mean, I've done this myself, where I get together with friends, and we go out for a couple hours, and we share conversation, and we do something hard together, and we feel this deep connection. Then afterward, we go out, and, you know, we can leave that alone and maybe talk about some other things um, or whatever it is, but it's just like it's tightening those connections and you do it enough consistently over time and that's really when the magic happens. And and I imagine the same thing happens in the church community as well. Oh, absolutely. So someone asked me, I remember a couple of years ago, we were going, um, I was at a Moselle bird camp and we were going out in the long run and they asked me to do some reflections, which I often do at those annual gatherings. And so they said, are are you going to be okay? Like we're calling it the church of the Sunday. Are you offended? I'm like, no, I'm not offended. Like churches of like, whatever people are doing this sacramental thing. Like to me, it is a sacramental thing where you are out in the world exhibiting this inward grace outwardly. Right. Like the, and so people who are, um, Long old timers in the church might go, oh, we don't the co-opting of the language and all of that. And I'm like, I don't, yeah. I don't even care what you call it. I want people to have that experience of connection. And in my wildest dreams, if you can do that, both physically and spiritually in the church environment, then I'm having a great day, right? Like, and if I can get some sense of that on a Sunday long run with friends, or Saturday is when I would do my church of the, of the long run, like. It, yeah, it doesn't um, matter what day. Yeah, yeah. it's but I I kind of love that that's a play on name on the the language because I don't think they're that different. <laughs> I mean, you know. I think that's a great place to leave this one off. Jennifer, this has been awesome. We are going to do part two sometime in November, so everyone listening to this, stay tuned. In the meantime, you can follow Jennifer on Instagram. I will put a link to her bio in the show notes this episode so that you can find that because you've already you know, there's photos and just some like quick reflections on some of the experiences, you know, that you've had. And and I know just through our other conversations that you need time to just process all of this, uh, because it was in like sort of rapid succession. So we'll talk through all of that in November, but thank you so much for this conversation and just for your friendship. And yeah, I'm looking forward to that one a few months from now. Likewise. Thank you so much, Mario. I value you so much and all you do. Thank you for this. All right, that's it for this one. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen in. If you could, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you're tuning into this from. It means a lot to me, and it helps new listeners to discover the show. Also, a big thank you to my annual partners, Tracksmith, New Balance, Precision Fuel and Hydration, and Gooder for making it possible. Check out themorningshakeout.com slash partners to take advantage of some of the discount codes and special offers that are available exclusively to readers and listeners of The Morning Shakeout. 
Before we go, I'd like to give a couple more quick shout outs. The first to John Summerford, who has edited and produced every episode of the podcast since we launched it in late 2017. He's the reason this show sounds as good as it does week in and week out. The second goes to Chris Douglas, who is my right-hand man and helps manage partner relationships. And last but not least, Nicole Bush, who gives me a hand with social media content strategy and creation and is my co-host for Training Talk Thursday, which you can tune into on Thursday evenings at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Morning Shakeout's Instagram account, which you can find at The AM Shakeout. And that's all I've got. I'm Mario Fraioli, and this has been another episode of the Morning Shakeout Podcast.